Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Hebrews chapter 1, still. Um, and we s- started, there's a lot of scriptures, time permitting, that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, I didn't put all the verses down on this page for no other reason than instead of just front and back of one page, it probably would have been front and back of two or three at least uh, pages. But uh, outside of the overview last week, and I really consider the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, really part of the overview, part of the introduction. Hebrews written to Jewish people, two groups of Jewish people, we'll find out as we uh, march through this book. One of these groups being those who are what are usually referred to as possessors, possessing the Lord, possessors of eternal life. They truly believe in the Lord and their life they have been redeemed. Uh, Jewish believers in Jesus. Then there's another group in this book, the them, who are Jewish as well, but who are just professing. They have given head knowledge to Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior, but they don't possess the Lord, they profess him. No difference in the last 2,000 years of church history. Uh, You'll find that same reality in any Bible-believing church of any size, that there are those there, and hopefully most of them are born again, possessing the Lord. But you'll find in any sizable Bible-believing church, you'll find your tares. You'll find those who are just professors that aren't truly saved, but they have the right words. Well, these Jewish people who profess the Lord are thinking of falling back to more than rabbinism, mosaism. And we need to make that difference there. Although although rabbinical teaching had invaded the nation of Israel at at this time in history, the first century, with the oral traditions, the Talmud, that type of thing. But you still had the temple standing. You still had the sacrifices that you had to bring. You still had the priesthood and the high priest, as, as corrupt as it had become, it was still an institution ordained of God, that there would be a priesthood, a temple, and sacrifices, and so on. 
So there is very much a lure uh, to go back to these things that God had, yes, ordained and that Israel had practiced for um, oh, some 1,500 years or so, roughly, from the time of Moses. So what is being done in Hebrews, it's a book of contrast. Yeah, these things were good. Angels were good uh, and are good. Uh, Moses and priests and the high priest and the old covenant and so on. But Jesus is so much better. And there's no better way to start this book than how it begins in the first three verses. When what is presented is the son and the three offices of the anointed one. In Old Testament Israel, ancient Israel, there were three offices. There was prophet, there was priest, and there was king. And you were anointed, oil was poured on you, and you were anointed into that office, and, uh, and, and you only served in one office. You might have functioned in another occasionally, at least in the sense David was in the office of king, but David at times was God's spokesman to the people, gave prophecies and some books were written and, and that type of thing. So he starts out in the first three verses presenting the son as the prophet, the priest, the king, and to the audience he is writing, they would have been fully aware of what was being done. The son is the anointed one. He fulfills all the offices, that all the offices in the Old Testament economy, ancient Israel, of prophet, priest, and king come together in this one. But not only that, um, he is deity. And, and, and the terms that are used in this first part of Hebrews 1, uh, he's the brightness of the glory of God. Um, he is uh, upholding all things by his power. He's the express image of his person. Uh, all of this is speaking of the, uh, the deity of the Son. And mentioned last week, probably worth mentioning again, uh, you don't find Jesus mentioned at all until chapter 2, verse 9. So we're going to read all the way through chapter 1. We're not going to see the name Jesus mentioned. We're going to read uh, the first eight verses of chapter 2 and not see the name Jesus. When we come to chapter 2, verse 9, what it says at that point, but we see Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews, and I think no one, of, no one here knows who the author is. Um, you know, most commentators will probably say it's Paul, and uh, <coughs> I'm not sure that's correct, you know, but anyway... You know, there's, you know, I've got a lot of questions for a lot of people when I get to heaven. You know, uh, I want to I want to meet with Samuel. And uh, in Second Samuel chapter, no, second or first, it's um, about turn. I think it's First Samuel nine and ten, um, where he preaches a sermon to Saul, and the result of the sermon is Saul gets a new heart. Saul gets saved, King Saul. And he didn't have a lot of the Bible. You know, what it says, he, he told the servants, go, go on before me, stand still. I Come up, Saul, to the top of the house. I want to share the word of God with you. 
He had the five books of Moses. He probably had the book of Job. I'm curious. I'm really curious. What did he share with Saul that was enough information that he accepted the Lord and got, in, in our vernacular, saved? I want to know. How about on the Emmaus Road? When Jesus was on the Emmaus Road for a couple of hours with those two people. And he opened, uh, taught them uh, from the entire Jewish Bible, from the law, the prophets, and the writings, all the things concerning himself. That's from Moses, that's the whole, boy, would I have loved to heard that sermon. Now, the line for Jesus is going to be awful long. And, but, uh, you know, I've got all eternity. <laughs> so I may go to those Cleopas. And I may go to uh, Samuel, which they'll probably have a lot shorter lines, easier to see, to find out some of these answers, you know. Uh, Y'all can stand in line for 150 years. Um, I'm going to go talk to someone I can see within a day or two. But anyway, that's my thinking. So, um, but I'm going to go to Paul. Paul, did you write that? Paul's going to probably have a pretty long line, too. So I may go to Apollos uh, or Priscilla, some of these other people that people reckon, reckon, su su suggest maybe wrote the book of uh, Hebrews. And I said, did you write Hebrews? Did you? I want to find out who really wrote Hebrews, the human author. We know it's penned by God. Uh, anyway, so we all probably have questions like that, but those are three of my uh, things that I really want to know that is unknowable. Uh, this side of heaven. And if you tell me that God's given you the answer to any of these questions, tell it to Bob. Um, so. And, and these people have no idea what you're talking about. When Jesus rose from the grave, rose from the grave and ultimately went up to Galilee and Peter was out on the boat fishing, and they hadn't caught any fish. And, and Jesus said, cast your net into the boat. And they cast it in. They brought up a big catch. How many? Well, you gave the answer. I, I should. I don't want to answer, you know. So how many fish did they catch in that net that they hauled in? Yeah, you listen to Bob. Good. Yeah, so good. You're right. So, you know, yeah, so... I was asked that question the other day by a doctor who thought, you know, who, who, who he thought he, I, I think he thought he could stump me. Um, but anyway, be that as it may. Um, no, it wasn't Alan that asked me that question. Uh, so, and he was surprised that I got it right. But anyway, um, okay, let's move on. Um, you brought it up, Bob. But anyway, okay. <laughs> so, um, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, so he's speaking Jewish people. There's no better way to open this book than presenting the son as the Messiah. That's literally what he's doing. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. But more than that, or as much as that, maybe more than that, he is very God himself. 
And, and that's the foundation of the book of Hebrews. You know, we talk about Jesus is better than the angels and Moses and the Levitical priesthood and the high priest and yada yada, all of this, and that's all true. Why is he better? It's right here. And what we're going to find in the rest of chapter 1, he just, the writer of Hebrews just piles on, as it were, um, with the deity of Messiah, or the deity of the Son, who is the Messiah. Um, it is, I, I think, one of those mountain peak, uh, maybe we could call it prophetic or prophecy, as it's really not prophecy, but certainly one of those mountain peak sections of Scripture showing that Jesus is God. Uh, I think there are, you know, I think the end of, um, oh, um, where else might you go for, for a whole section? I think Isaiah chapter, uh, uh, chapter, um, I'm trying to remember where now, 49, 48 and 49 and even into 50 are, are one of those sections that are just powerful, powerful on that. Uh, certainly there are a lot of verses that we can look at, but for a whole section of scripture, there's probably nothing more powerful, better than what we have here in Hebrews chapter one. It is just, he's piling on. We've already seen it to start with, but, but that's really the foundation for the whole book. Why is Jesus so much better? Or why is the Son, who is Jesus, uh, so much better? And, and with all the prophecies he gives, that's why when we get to verse 9 of chapter 2, but we see Jesus. And, and that's, that's the way to share with Jewish people. Give him all the stuff from the Jewish Bible, and, but, but we see Jesus, exactly. But he's doing it, he's the deity. He, he's, the, he's Messiah, yes, but he's very God himself. He's the God of Israel. Uh, and so it's a very, very strong presentation. Now, my introduction, introduction on the notes says this. <clears throat> the focus on this portion of Scripture is that the Son, who, yes, is Jesus, is better than angels. And, and in ancient Israel, we got the same type of thing in today's world, uh, but in biblical times, angels were... Revered is probably too strong of a, of a word. Um, only, um, I don't remember which psalm it is, uh, but who says, uh, his name is reverend. You know, I, know, I know people who don't want to be called reverend, which is, which is a title, because the psalmist said, only his, God's name is reverend. So why do, don't call me reverend if God alone is reverend. And, uh, I, I think it's overblowing it a little bit. It's a title. It's an office you hold, uh, as, as humanly speaking, that type of thing. Although the argument can be made you don't hold the or office of reverend you hold. There's an office of pastor. Uh, so, but everybody has to land on that uh, on their own. Certainly, don't call me the most holy reverend. That's getting a little bit too far out. Um, so, and I am a reverend, by the way, for, you know, that and a dollar gets me a cup of coffee because uh, I'm a senior citizen uh, at McDonald's. So, uh, you know, be that as it may, um, I am ordained. That's what it means to be reverend. Uh, anyway, well, I'm digressing way too much. Uh, Bob said I was wound up earlier. Um, 
I guess I haven't wound down yet, so. <coughs> okay, let me, let me try to figure out where, okay. He's, he's better than the angels. Angels were not revered in the sense of worship, but they were highly esteemed in biblical days for all the visitations that angels made to Israel. I mean, there's just a host of them. Uh, Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord. Genesis 19, 18 and 19 with Abram and the three men who came to them. Two of them were angels. One was the Lord himself. Uh, Manoah and his wife in Judges chapter 13 and come over into what we call the New Testament. You have, uh, you know, angels appearing and in um, the shepherd's field and different places. So uh, today uh, you almost have, you almost have, it's different than biblical days. They at least had a justification uh, because of all the appearance of angels. Today you have angel worship. In, in a lot of quarters, and uh, that's carried over to different TV shows. I don't want, you know, um, Touched by an Angel, uh, High Wave, yeah, and, and I don't watch these, um, you know, because they just really abuse the Word of God, spiritual truth, um, and, um, but, you know, anyway, it's, it's the time we love it. People love story about and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about guardian angels if we get there tonight hopefully we'll get there so because there's no such thing as guardian angels i'm already at verse 14 uh but we're there's no such thing as guardian angel how many of you think there's guardian angels don't raise your hand because you then you're going to be embarrassed <laughs> um so there's no such thing as guardian angels um so Well, I think it more comes from the Hebrew one, one uh, the one. I, but I think most of it comes from movies and books, personally. But it doesn't come from the Bible. Anyway, the focus on this portion of Scripture is that the Son, Jesus, is better than angels. In establishing this truth, the writer quotes extensively from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, Jewish Bible, showing that Jesus is God and that angels are just ministering spirits. They are not do our worship, and in fact, they, angels, worship God. There is no better way to convince a Jewish person that Jesus is Messiah and God, and Hebrews is written to Jewish people, than to quote extensively from the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. Angels are powerful beings. Unquestionably, they're powerful beings. But they are not God. And the Son is much better. There is perhaps no better passage of Scripture than the one we're going to look at tonight to establish the deity of Jesus than the one here, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, there's all kinds of stories about angels. I have two, three quotes. One is authoritative. The other two we'll take with a grain of salt. The first one comes from the book by Alan S. Colson, uh, The Case of the Elusive Angel of Mons. And it says this. One of the abiding legends of the Great War, World War I, 
is of an intercession by a heavenly agent, allegedly observed by many soldiers. During the opening action at Mons, Belgium, part of the larger action known as the Battle of the Frontiers in August 1914. In his book, Angels A to Z, Matthew Bunsen recounts, quote, one of the most famous episodes of angelic intervention was the supposedly widely reported descent of an angelic, uh, no, I missed a sentence. Well, report, well, let me see. One of the most famous was a supposedly widely reported descent of an angelic army in August 1914, which came to the aid of the British forces against the Germans in Mons. The angelic host's assistance could not have come at a more propitious time or moment as the British were driven, driven back by the relentless German advance. So supposedly, according to this book and this report, and... Uh, I witnessed by many of the British soldiers, probably German soldiers too, that this whole uh, army of angels came down. Eh, maybe it happened. I just know that all you needed was one. You know, not to say there couldn't be an army, but the, you know, you have that report. Then there's this from the Six Day War. An Ohio newspaper journalist who was covering the Six Day War recounted how Moshe Dayan, an Israeli military commander, that one-eyed general, uh, was chided to invade Jerusalem quickly. Diane said that he was, quote, watching the angel of the Lord with his sword lifted up and said he would not move until the angel's sword came down. As a result, they easily took the city. Remember the um, series we looked at, I don't know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, DVDs, I think we did it on a Saturday night because there were six or seven videos on um, the miracles in Israel. And a reporter was uh, an unbeliever. And so he went out to try to establish as a reporter, a skeptic of uh, God's intervention in Israel's modern history. And so there were some very, very fascinating stories that was reported in these DVDs. And a couple of the incidents was uh, angels. Where was that? I remember one anyway. There was that, what, maybe small, would you call it a platoon, maybe half a dozen Israeli soldiers by the, uh, the wall in Jerusalem. And there was a whole troop or whatever, hundreds of uh, Arab soldiers, Jordanian, I think, that were fighting them. And the six or so Israeli soldiers were, were basically out of bullets. Their, their, their ammunition had gone, had dried up. And they were about to be overrun. And all of a sudden, um, these Arab soldiers, Jordanian, Syrian, whoever they were, it doesn't really matter, um, just turned around and hightailed it out of there. And later on, after the war was over, one of these soldiers met one of these Arabs and found out that he was in that. You could have killed us all. Why did you run? He said, why did we run? You didn't see all those guys with you? Uh, and they just outnumbered us and they were huge or something like that. Well, a visit of angels. So you get all these stories. Now, this next illustration I know is true. Because it comes from Isaiah. 
37, 36. And, the, and then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. One killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And when they arose early in the morning, not the soldiers, the Israelites, behold, they were all dead corpses. Wow. Amen. See, this is a true account. And that is, is that a little bit redundant? They were all dead? <laughs> you know, either one would have worked. If you're, if you're a corpse, you're what? You're dead. And if you're dead, you're a corpse. Maybe it's for emphasis. You know, I've never met a live corpse. Or, um, or, or, or cor you know, anyway. That account was, so angels are powerful. There's no question about that. Um, but they're not nearly as good or better or important compared to Jesus, compared to the Son. Verse 4, as we go on now. Verse 4 and 5. Being made so much better than the angels. This is the Son. Being made so much better than the angels as he had by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, before we read verse 5, uh, point number one, being made so much better than the angels. Some people will, will, will jump on this phrase and say, see, Jesus is a created being. He was made, you know, if you make something, aren't you uh, bringing something into existence, as it were? Yeah. Well, what is speaking here being made um, so much better than the angels? Speaking of his humanity, because he came into the world as man. Um, he was deity from eternity past, the son was. But this is speaking of his humanity. Where the word, as John chapter 1 says, the word, what, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then what does verse 14 say? And the word became, was made, we could even say, flesh. Became man, became human. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 talks about that. Romans 9.5. Um, Hebrews 2.9, he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Here at this point when he would, he was made a little lower than the angels in that he would die. Physically. Angels don't die. Uh, physically. Anyway, uh, but we'll look at that um, when we get to um, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and, and verse 9. So he's, ma he's made so much better than the angels, uh, speaking of his humanity. And then as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. God has given everything. He's the heir of everything. Romans chapter 1. There's so many verses that we could look at in this, but Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us, <coughs> and going back to verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. See, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, 
and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be the Son of God with power, with authority. He is the heir. God the Father has given to the Son everything. He is the heir of everything. So he is, uh, he's obtained a more excellent name than, than the angels, and uh, he's got inheritance obtained by that more excellent name. Um, then thirdly, on this, verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son? This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, what he does here, what the writer of Hebrews does, he starts by giving quotes from the Old Testament. Prophecies from the Old Testament. The first one, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, is quoted from the second psalm. Look at Psalm 2. Go back to Psalm 2. Now understand, when, when this was written, there were some books of the New Testament, yes, but still the, the primary scripture that they had was the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And again, speaking to Jewish people here in the context. So he gives Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy, one after another. In Psalm chapter 2, why did the heathen rage, verse 1, the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth are uh, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, against God himself, and against his anointed. Now, we looked last week at those three offices. You're, they're, they're all anointed offices. And Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. So the rulers of the earth are ultimately fighting against God, but who else are they fighting against? Jesus, the Christ. Christ literally is Messiah in the English, the anointed one of God. So the rulers, uh, they're fighting against God, but they're also fighting against Jesus. They set themselves together against God and against his anointed, uh, saying, verse 3, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. That's the history of nations. That's the history of man. I will not have that man to rule over me. And so the nations of the world are, you know, that, that's all what the uh, Tower of Babel was, was about. Satan's uh, getting all the nations at that time, or, or actually it was nations at that time, all the people at that time to rebel against God. And, and then God divided them into people groups. So, and, and, and there were nations actually, because um, of, ch of chapter uh, 10, chapter 11 you have Babel, but then uh, what you have is the different languages that would come into the world. But that's basically been the aspirations of nations and individuals who make up nations throughout history. I don't want God to rule over me. We're going to do it our way. We see it happening all throughout the world today. We see it happening in our country. What does God do? He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
look at puny man. Look at these nations. Isaiah said God considers nations a drop in the bucket. Insignificant drop in the bucket. So God sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord shall have them in derision. Uh, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. That time is coming. That's the tribulation period eventually. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is what is being quoted in, in Hebrews 1, in verse 5, where it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, it goes on down in Psalm chapter 2. If you read the entire chapter, um, be wise now, therefore, verse 10, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Worship the sun. Reverence the sun is what it's saying. Have a personal relationship with the sun, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his, the sun's, wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. In who? The Son, Jesus, the Son. You're blessed if you put your trust in the Son. You want another argument for, the, for Jesus being God? In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, it says, if you put your trust in man, you're cursed. In verse 7, it says, if you put your trust in, in the Lord, Jehovah, you are blessed. If Jesus is just a man, here it commands us to put our trust in him. If he is just a man and we put our trust in Jesus, we're cursed. He's got to be more than just a man because only God is the one we put our trust in and then we'll be blessed. Jesus is God. That's the argument of chapter 2 of chapter 1 of Hebrews verse 5. And, and ju just, we're gonna, I'm going to mention it in passing, um, actually these next couple of verses, because I do want to try to get through this whole chapter. Um, this day have I begotten thee. It's interesting how the term begotten is used in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, in, the, in 33 and 40, 34, and actually it, it, I think it starts around verse, turn to Acts 13. Okay, let's do that. Acts chapter 13, picking it up starting at um, pick it up verse uh, 29. And that when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. So who did they take from the tree and laid him in a grave? Jesus. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. There you have the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. He was seen many days of them which came up with him, 
from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, good news, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God had fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he had raised up Jesus again. What was the promise God made to our fathers? Messiah would be resurrected. Jesus is the Messiah. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. This day have I begotten thee is the resurrection of Jesus. When Psalm 2, verse 7, speaks of this day have I begotten, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, I have resurrected you. That's how it's used in Acts chapter 13. And this whole section, starting in verse 30, really 29 tells us of the death and the burial. Verse 30, he was raised from the grave. Um, but going all the way down to verse 37 is one prophecy after another from the Old Testament about the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 34, where he says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's a quote from Isaiah 55. Resurrection. Wherefore he saith also in another uh, psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. That's from Psalm. Anybody want to take a stab at it? What Psalm is this? 16. Very good, April. 16. Psalm 16. Yeah. And you probably looked in the, you know, if you looked in the little, in the, in the center there, you, you probably got a, you know, a cheat sheet. Uh, that's all right, you know. You know. Okay. Um, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. That's what Psalm 16 says, verse 10. You will not see corruption. So you've got all of these passages that speak of the resurrection here. So going back to Hebrews in, in, in our sheet, uh, which angel at any time did God say, you're my son? And this day I have resurrected thee. That's, just, that's what he's saying. I have begotten thee. And that I have resurrected thee. The only one he's called his son. The uniqueness of that and is, is Jesus he's talking about. Um, and again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, uh, here he's quoting the Davidic covenant. Whether it's 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16, or 1 Chronicles 17, 13, it's in the context of the Davidic covenant uh, around a section of scripture that's talking about uh, David and Solomon, and he puts in this promise of, of a son and the Davidic covenant speaking of Jesus, and uh, says, I will be a father and you will be my son. You will be the, the Jesus will be the messianic king ultimately. Now, we're not, again, you can look at these later if you want. But the promised Davidic covenant is mentioned no less than seven times in First and Second Chronicles. In 17, 11 through 14, chapter 22, chapter 28, Second Chronicles chapter 6, 
chapter 7, chapter 13, chapter 21. No less than seven times in that. The one conditional aspect of the Davidic covenant, see this is an unconditional covenant, is shown to be the downfall of all the kings of Judah as none of them could meet that condition. Ultimately, it is Jesus who will fulfill the one conditional aspect of the unconditional covenant and establish the Davidic throne. Now, what is that? Turn back to 1 Chronicles 28. And if you're not sure where 1 Chronicles 28 is, 1 Chronicles is right before 2 Chronicles. Um, yeah, you're a lot of help, Mark. Um, 1 Chronicles chapter 20 is after 2 Kings, if that helps. But anyway, chapter 28, and we're in verse, uh, what verse was that? 7. Five eighty-three. Thank you, there, young man. You get a prize for getting the page for us. So, I'm obviously mixing 176 pages in my Bible, since it's 407 in my Bible. But uh, you can, I'll, I'll make a copy of those missing pages later. So, okay, 28:7, First Chronicles 28:7. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments. As at this day. I'll establish his kingdom with what? If he constantly does my commandments, keeps my law. Well, how did the Judean kings do in that regard? They did not. Some did better than others, but none of them were perfect. There's only one Judean king who would meet this necessity. Jesus. He's perfect. So when he says, I will be to him and a father, he shall be t uh, to me a son. He's talking about this son who's the Messiah, the anointed one, who is the Davidic king, the messianic king, the promised one who is coming. Then in verse 6 of Hebrews 1, he says this. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, I, I think recently we, we talked about this word, uh, he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. Uh, Prototokos, uh, here, he's the firstborn, the first begotten. Uh, look, at, look at Colossians chapter 1. Didn't we, didn't we look at this recently in, in some context? Could have been somewhere else I looked at it with somebody, I don't remember. Um, but Colossians chapter 1. And boy, did the Jehovah Witnesses love this passage um, they just go to they go to town on this um, chapter 1 verse 15 who and this who is the son Jesus if you back up and read the context who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature it's the same word that we find here in Hebrews. The firstborn or first begotten. And, and the Jehovah Witnesses will just jump over the, all over this. They say, he's the, yes, he's the image uh, of God, uh, but he's the firstborn. Well, you know, and 
then they go on and they read further on down, and, and, and then they also say, well, look down at verse, um, oh, let me see where it is. Um, firstborn from the dead, let me see. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, which in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Same word back in verse 15, firstborn of every creature. Now, just ask yourself some questions. Was Jesus the firstborn of every creature? When was Jesus born? Well, no, he was born. He was born into this world, wasn't he? What happened through Mary? So when was he born into this world? About 2,000 years ago. Was anybody born into this world prior to that time? Adam, Eve, Lot, um, Noah, his wife, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I mean, we, these are just the highlighters. Uh, the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and millions and probably maybe billions of people were born. So was he the first born chronologically? No, no. And then verse 18 where he says he is the... Uh, Firstborn from the dead, and they say he was the first one to come out of the grave. Well, when did Jesus come out of the grave? About 2,000 years ago, right? There minus 33 years. Was there anybody who came out of the grave prior to Jesus? How about Lazarus? How about in the uh, earlier scriptures? Yeah. The widows and, 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 and Elijah and, and uh, the miracles. So was, was Jesus the first one to come out of the grave? No. So obviously it doesn't mean firstborn that he is the he's, he's only human. He's the image of God. But, you know, firstborn literally means um, preeminent one. Dr. Showers... Uh, a number of years ago in Israel, my glory on the eternality and the preexistence of Christ said this. The word that Paul, commenting on Colossians 1.15, which is the same thing here, the first begotten into the world, uh, did use had two connotations. Priority and sovereignty. Priority had two possible sub-connotations. The first part of something or existence before something. The context of the word determines which sub-connotation is intended. The Colossians 1 context demands the sub-connotation of existence before something, verses 16 and 17. Thus, when Paul referred to Christ as the firstborn of all creation, he was teaching that Christ existed before and is sovereign over all creation. F.F. Bruce states what the title does mean is that Christ existing as he did before all creation exercises the privilege of primogeniture as the Lord of all creation, the divinely appointed heir of all things, Hebrews 1, 2. He was there when the creation began, and it was for him as well as through him that the whole, uh, that the whole work was done. And ba literally, basically, in, in its basic form, it means the, the most important. Um, it literally, go to the back page, uh, uh, the word uh, to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence to, adore, worship, 
uh, that type of thing when you when you uh, worship the firstborn. Um, it literally means the preeminent one, the most important one. But he was sovereign in there before creation. What it is saying in verse 6, um, when he brings in the first begotten in the world, let all the angels of God worship him. When ultimately Jesus comes into the world, the sovereign God would come into the world and he is the most important of all God's creation. What are angels to do? Worship him. Angels worship the sun. The sun does not worship angels. Now, angels are commanded to worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. On the back of your sheet, God commanded angels to, to worship him. Now, this quote is from Deuteronomy 32.43. <coughs> now, let me read how it reads in, in the King James. And if you want to open up to Deuteronomy 32, 43. And remember that phrase. This is the end of verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Here's how 32.43 reads in the King James. And if you want, you can read what you have in your version. But here's what it says. And keep in mind, again, you're listening for that phrase, let all the angels of God worship him. Because it's being quoted here in Hebrews 1. Here's what it says. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Whoa. Where is and let all the angels of God worship him? Now, I don't know what you have in... Somebody have another version. Deuteronomy 32, 43 if you'd want to read it. What does the New King James say? Says the same thing as the King James. Nations is goyim, Gentiles, merciful, atonement, same thing. Where is that phrase, and let all the angels of God worship him? Anybody have um, ASV or anything like that, or NIV? Or? Okay, well, that's Dead Sea Scrolls. But it's simpler than that. Um, often the, the Bible that was oftentimes used in the first century was the translation was the Septuagint. Now, you know what the Septuagint is? It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Done roughly uh, by, they say, 70 rabbis about 200 years or so prior to the time of Christ. 
That was the common translation used in the first century. The Septuagint, you can, you can, we, we have it in our library. You can, you can get it today. Now, in the earliest, now, uh, let me see. Um, in the earliest citations of the Septuagint, and uh, Deuteronomy 32, 43 is in your notes. But in the earliest citations of the Septuagint, in other writings, we see a similar but slightly different reading. For example, Justin Martyr, writing around 155 to 160 A.D., quoted it this way. Rejoice, O heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. There it is, out of the Septuagint. Rejoice, uh, rejoice, O nations, with his people. Let all the angels of God prevail for him, for he will avenge the blood of his sons, will render vengeance on his adversaries, and will atone for his land and his people. Now, sons of God here as well could be used uh, to denote angels. Job, for example, chapter 1, said the angels were called sons of God. Um, and that is most likely why Justin Martyr quoted it as angels of God, which is how it is written in Hebrews 1.6. Revelation 22, angels and men are required or called on to worship God. Also Psalm 48, 2 through 5. Now, in the Septuagint, that's the Bible used in the first century. That's why it's quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1. But you don't find it in the King James Version or the New King James Version or others. But one of the things about Deuteronomy 32 that is brought out here, um, and, and if you don't want to turn back there, that's fine. Let me just uh, read these verses to you in the context. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 32, where it says, and when the Lord, Jehovah, saw it, he abhorred them. And I'm not going to read the entire verse. When the Lord, when Jehovah God saw them, he abhorred them. Look at verse 27. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves uh, strangely, lest they should say, our hand is high, and the Lord had not done all this. Jehovah. Then look down at verse, what would it be, 30. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the Lord, Jehovah, had shut them up? Look at verse 36. For the Lord, Jehovah, shall judge his people. And repent himself for his servants. Look at 37 uh, through 39. And he shall say, Jehovah shall say, Where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? See, Jehovah speaks of himself as the rock. Which did eat of the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, I am he, and there is no God with me. There's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I healed. Neither is any that can deliver out of my hand. And it goes on. And then when it ultimately comes down to verse 43, it's still the same one speaking, Jehovah. 
when this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 6, it is saying, when God brings the firstborn begotten into the world, which is the Son, which is Jesus, and he saith of him, let all the angels of God worship him, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43, albeit in the Septuagint. And the context of Deuteronomy 32 is speaking of Jehovah. And the angels are to worship Jehovah. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus then? Who is Jesus? Jehovah. Jehovah Witnesses are just plain out to lunch. Wrong. And there are many, many times you can show this type of thing in the Old Testament that where Jehovah is used is speaking of the Son, Jesus. He is Jehovah God. He's not just God, he's Jehovah. Which is, which is extremely important when you're talking to Jehovah Witnesses. Now it goes on, and, and we're going to finish real quick. Look at 7 through 9. And, uh, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son... He saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, hath anointed thee <coughs> with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God says of the angels, you're, you're, my, you're my ministering spirits. You're my servants. Unto the Son, and he quotes Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Unto the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Son is God. Never said that to an angel. Never said to an angel, sit on my throne. And your throne is forever and ever. No, angels are ministering spirits. He's quoting Psalm, 100, Psalm um, uh, 45, 6, and 7. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 4, by the way, angels are servants, he's quoting from. And then 10 through 12, he says this. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish, but thou remains. They shall all wax old as the other garment. And as a vesture shall thou fold them up. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The Son is called Lord who is the creator, who is eternal. He's in the beginning. He remains. He is the same. His years will never fail. He is the creator, quoting from the 102nd Psalm. So if the Son is the creator, who is he? God. Then he closes this first chapter, again asking, but with, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, the 110th Psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. To which of the angels said he that? Never. He only said that to his son. Sit thou at my right hand. And then he closes about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Angels are ministering spirits, and they are sent forth, they minister to believers. That doesn't mean you have a guardian angel. That doesn't mean you have an angel trailing you every moment of every day. And his name is Jason. And you can, hey, Jason, come on, we got to go along. You're my guardian angel. No, angels are ministering spirits. How quickly do you think an angel can be here? In a blink. Now, they can be thwarted by demons. Because when Gabriel came to deliver a message to Daniel, how long did it take him to get there? Yeah, a long time. Weeks. Because he was being uh, thwarted by, ultimately, Satan. But Satan, the angels are everywhere. Uh, and, and are there more angels than demons? When the, when the, demons re, when the angels rebelled, how many of the angels became demons? One-third. So one-third of the angelic realm are demonic, satanic, fallen angels, which how many then are good angels? Twice as many. Two-thirds. A legion. I don't more than a legion. Legions. Oh, okay, plural. So if you have one demon and one angel fighting against each other, how many angels do you have, good angels do you have left over? As many are as fighting the bad angels. So they, they vastly outnumber demons. So if God, if God sees a need, there are angels very possibly in this room here tonight. So, well, but that's because of a unique thing that was taking place with the battle and angels to protect him. If Bob and I get in a fight, then, then I'm going to open Bob's eyes to see the angels that are surrounding me, and he will stop. Um, but beyond that, there, there's no guarantee. That there, there's likely angels here, but we don't know for sure. But, but they're, they're around, they're somewhere. Um, you know, how quickly can they be here in, in, in a moment? You know, I, I, I've never seen an angel. Well, I, my wife, my wife, she's an angel. Um, <coughs> okay, tell her I said that, Yvonne, please. It is recorded, so okay. Um, but I, I remember, I, I've told you this story years ago, running my dog around the, the neighborhood after about midnight, and uh, I got home late, and those are the days I was more into exercise. Today, I, this is how I exercise today, uh, so, um, or typing a keyboard. But anyway, um, and I had a collie, and uh, wouldn't keep him on a leash, and he would go in one direction, I would go in another, we'd go take about a 20-minute run around the neighborhood, and as I'm coming around this, this it was happened to be an oval um, block uh, or you know whatever you want to call it. And all of a sudden, I see this huge Doberman coming at me. You've heard I've told some of you know this story, and uh, he was he was at least 60, 70 pounds, and he was I don't know a couple of hundred feet away, but that's nothing for a Doberman. I mean, running at full speed, and, and he was not. Happy. He was just 
not, you could tell, growling and barking. I don't believe in visions, but I had a vision. I thought I was dinner for a Doberman. Um, I really thought I was. I didn't know what I was going to do. And so the first thing I thought about, and, this, you know, this, and all of this happened in three seconds. I mean, very quickly, because he was just coming at me. And, uh, well, I'm going to give him an uppercut. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> How's that going to work? You know, uh, you know, this 70-pound Doberman coming full speed, jumping through the air. If I happened to land it, it, it you know, probably wouldn't have done a thing. Um, I dismissed that very, very quickly. And the only thing I could think of was um, Psalm 90 or 92. 91. Well, I was right around this time. He shall give his angels charge over thee and keep thee in every way. I couldn't even get the whole thing out. All I could, I said, Jesus, you shall give your angels charge over me. That's all I could get out. That Doberman was 10 feet away and he stopped like he'd hit a brick wall, literally. And then he started just circling and growling and wouldn't come any closer. And finally, his owner came running up. And when his owner came out next to him, grabbed him, then the dog walked up to me and, and you know, sniffed and smelled. But it was okay then. The owner was holding him. I have no doubt whatsoever that that poor dog saw an angel. I have no doubt. What's, there's no other reason on earth why this dog would have stopped like he did. It was only me and him. My dog is a collie. What's he going to do with it? He was a 30-pound collie. I don't know how many. You know, collies are all hair. You know, they're, you know, they're, you, know you, ever t you take the hair off a collie and they're like a, a rat. Uh, you know, they're all hair. You know, what's he going to do with this Doberman? He wasn't around anyway. I have no doubt he saw, saw an angel. I didn't see the angel. I believe God gave me an angel. How quick, how long did it take for that angel to get there? Jesus, you should give your angels charge of me. Zap, the angel was there. And the dog wouldn't come any close. But we don't have guardian angels. If, if, if you have a need, God is more than able to send an angel to help you out um, and, and minister to you. But you don't have one tailing you. You, you know, you don't have um, uh, April's angels. You know, you know, Charlie's angels maybe, but not April's <laughs> angels. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. So... But there are angels, you know, but they're, why? And they're ministering spirits. They minister to us. But Jesus is so much better, so much better than angels. Why? He is very God himself. So don't get involved in angel worship. That is sin. Worship the Son. He is so much better than angels. Any questions or thoughts? Okay, my, the angel in back of me is pushing me. And say, get, come on, they want to eat. Get through. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know if there's an angel back there. Okay, let's pray. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. 
if you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.